News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You may have seen some of the pictures over the weekend of people kind of partying in the streets in the capital of the UK in London. And you think, what is going on there? Well, they've got some new restrictions coming because the numbers for COVID-19 are not good. In fact, there's some troubling news out of different countries in Europe, for sure. Uh, countries like the UK, France, particularly hard hit. We had a chance to connect with Global News European Bureau Chief Crystal Gumansing for more on this. Crystal, thank you so much for joining us. Now, just from reading some of the headlines in the British newspapers, it sounds like the COVID-19 situation is not good in the UK. It's really not. And, you know, we were warned a week ago Monday, we had the two scientific advisors, the two top individuals sit down, hold about a 20-minute press conference and lay it all out for people and say, listen, we need to act now. Otherwise, things are going to get worse and it's going to happen fast. We we watched the numbers rising in Spain. We watched the numbers rising in France. We knew it was going to hit here. Uh, about three days later, we did see some changes being implemented, not only in England, but of from all of the devolved nations, Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, all sort of putting in their own um, restrictions in place. Um, and today in England, we have more restrictions officially taking place, saying, you know, if it, you uh, are contacted by the National Health Service Track and Trace and you are been seen to have been in contact with someone with the virus or are suspected to have the virus, you now legally have to lock down. Um, if you don't, you could be fined a thousand pounds for a first time offense. That's $1,700 Canadian. It can go up to 10,000 pounds. So they're trying to put a little bit of weight behind the measures. Right. Uh, we know we saw pubs, restaurants and bars being told you have to close at 10. That, however, you know, is having maybe um, uh, a negative effect that some could have predicted where we see people spilling out onto the streets. We see, see parties in the streets, uh, off sales um, increasing. So there is now more talk of a potential, at least for England, of a circuit break, a two week break of a full lockdown. Whether or not that happens, we just don't know yet. So what is going on then with the government? Has there been mixed messaging? Because I, I, it just seems like there is that way. First they get told do this, then they get told do this. Like I would say it's no, not surprising that people seem a bit confused about what exactly is going on. You know, this time around, I don't think it's mixed messaging because the messaging has been relatively clear. I think right now what we're seeing is a uh, a definite attempt to make everybody happy. Keep restaurants open, mm. keep bars open, keep shops open, keep businesses open, but also try to, you know, tamp down those rising infection rates. And at some point, you're just not going to make everybody happy. And a decision is going to have to be made like we saw in March when it comes to a lockdown. And I think that is leading to more confusion, more frustration. And people are just, they're exhausted. You know, we've had how many months of, of back and forth. Summertime was nice. We did see those numbers sort of drop very, very, very low. Um, but of course, we are being told the next six months, the measures we see right now will be in place for at least the next six months. And because there are different measures right across all of the UK, that is leading to some people saying, well, they're not doing this over here. Why are we doing it? So are people listening or is there a problem with that? 
for the most part, people are listening, except in certain groups where we see, you know, the idea isn't to shut pubs and restaurants down at 10 o'clock so that there can be street parties. The idea <laughs> is to have people, you know, still be able to support local businesses, people to still earn a wage, still be able to enjoy society, but then, you know, go home and be responsible. And that, I think, is the biggest frustration is the understanding of, um, you know, the actions of some which are highly publicized are going to change things for the whole lot of society. And that's where you see a lot of the frustration. So is it just the UK right now? Like, what are things like over in France? Yeah, it's not just the UK. The UK situation is getting worse. I'm going to quickly go through some of those numbers. The death rate, obviously, the UK does have the highest death rate in all of Europe. Uh, we are approaching that milestone of 42,000 deaths. But in France, for example, incredibly high infection rates. Infection rates higher than what we saw back at the start of the pandemic. So obviously, that is concerning. Mm-hmm. They are taking steps to put in measures around Paris. You know, we did see a reaction in, in Marseille because they were said, you know, no bars, shops, restaurants all have to shut down. So, you know, there is uh, that pushback. And in Spain, again, numbers incredibly high. But again, we're seeing just the um, an unwillingness, a, a, a concern of, of locking down again. So measures, you know, being rejected. Again, we could see as these numbers continue to rise and the, and the hospitalization and all of these locations continuing to rise, we might just get back to a position where governments have no choice but to do um, tougher measures and, and go back to sort of more of the wide sweeping lockdowns. All right, Crystal, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Take care. That's Crystal Gumansing, who's the Global News European Bureau Chief, talking about what is going on over in the UK. Have you seen some of those pictures? They're not... You know, and they very much have like that pub culture we know, right, over there of going for a pint after work or in the evening, going down to their local. Uh, So it's very much a habit. But closing everything at 10 o'clock means they're just getting huge crowds of people kind of milling out in the street that have turned into street parties. It reminded me very much of what we saw here uh, in the earlier part of the summer, like towards the end of June, beginning of July. Remember when we were seeing those parties pop up kind of on Granville Street and the videos were online and people were going, what was going on? And then, you know, things definitely shifted when there was a crackdown on that. So they're still having a lot of that over there. Lots of rising case numbers too. So big problems. They're talking about another lockdown, as Crystal mentioned there. So we will talk more about that. This is Mornings with Simi. We've got the COVID alert app. Take the teacher who felt fine, but who tested positive after the app warned her she'd been exposed. COVID alert meant she went home instead of the classroom. All right, that's the Prime Minister in his address to Canadians last week. And that's a a nice idea. Theoretically, that is exactly how that app should work. But, as Global News has reported, there are still fewer than 3 million people who have actually downloaded the COVID alert app. And here in BC, there's other problems with it as well. We're going to talk more about that now with uh, Denis Gagnon, who's the head of the president, I should say, of BCSI Investigations. Uh, Denis, thanks for being back with us. Morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. So here in BC, we can download this, but it doesn't really work, does it? 
It does work a little bit. So it says, the, you know, I've got it on my phone right now. The COVID alert is active. So it will tell me if somebody comes at proximity of me. But meanwhile, I cannot report a diagnosis. So that's where we're at. So we're kind of in transition of not being able to report a diagnosis, but it will alert us if somebody is at close proximity. Meanwhile, that person has to be at proximity more than 15 minutes. So and within the two meters. So it makes it a little bit complex if you're going to the grocery store, uh, for example, somebody's not going to stand beside you probably for about 15 minutes. So there is some limitations right. to the app. But if people, if we can't report a diagnosis, then how are we going to know that the people we run into might have this, even if it's for 15 minutes? Well, that's the issue, right? And also the accuracy of the test. I was just reading uh, the last couple of days that the test in the U.S., for example, the um, 2% to 30% are misdiagnosed in regards to uh, false uh, negative. So, you know, there is some major, major complexity. So the app is not the only solution. It's one component of multifaceted type of, uh, you know, approach mm-hmm. to this whole problem. But uh, the app has not resolved anything yet. Like you said, 3 million people so far. It looks like it's about a million dollar trend per month in regards to the number of people getting the app. But meanwhile, like I said, it's active. You know, it says on my phone it's active, but it says no reporting yet in your area. And Quebec has decided not to go with it. There's some privacy issues. This this pandemic, you know, is very, very complex. But what I would recommend is people to download the app. You know, the people are worried about their privacy. I've taken care of that. I'm not worried about that anymore. I mean, my safety is way more important. But I think we have to get the young people on board. I mean, they really love their apps. You know, I'm talking mm-hmm. young adults and so on. I know my, my girls, you know, my children, they love their apps. So download the app, and at least it's on your phone. So when it gets activated, then we'll be ready because the cases are are going up tremendously. We're just listening to England. I mean, it's it's kind of, it's it's, a, it's getting out of it control is. again. I know, but they've got an app that they put out there to the public and they have 10, 10 million people downloading. That's the thing. You have to create uh, critical mass. You know, you have to get that momentum. And we haven't been able to get that yet, but it's so easy. I mean, you go onto the website, you know, Canada.ca, you go under the COVID and it's, I've got it right on my screen here. And you go to the download of the App Store, Apple, Google, and then you download it and it's on your phone. It's very, very simple to download, even for people that are not app savvy. But what is the holdup then here in BC for making this truly functional, completely functional? At this point, I really don't know what's holding it back. I mean, it's uh, it should be fairly simple to activate. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I think it's even harder to get people to buy into it. But right now, I, I am not certain. Maybe Dr. Bonnie Henry can answer that, um, you know, that why it, we haven't activated it. But I think it's time to do that now, especially when we're getting into flu season, the fall, and we're going to compound. You know, it, it's, it's compounding with different things now, as you know. More people inside, the schools are going. We're going to get into flu season. I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but you know, this is going to get complicated. It is. And yet BC keeps saying, they've been saying for months now, oh, we're working on that. Oh, we're looking at several different apps. Is it that hard, Denny? Or do you think, no, we just got to pick one and, and get on it this year? I don't think it's that complicated. I mean, the Canadian one is already going, and it's it's fairly simple. Alberta has their own app, which I got several months ago. I'm lucky I haven't got any alert, which I'm always <laughs> no worried I'm yeah. going to get something. But the, also, the alert only lasts for 14 days. So, you know, it's when you're in contact, let's say you go to Alberta, it only lasts for 14 days. So then, you, you know, you have to... Uh, 
reactivate your your uh, your uh, your app and so on. So it's not like it stays on there forever. And like I said, if we can get over this whole privacy issue that, and I've discussed that before, where people are on Facebook, Instagram, and so on, and they're not worried about that. I mean, you go to the mall and then they contact you saying, "Well, you were at the mall, you know, a few minutes ago." I mean, that's that's the know, irony, right? That's, 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 that's the irony of it, where <laughs> you know you're being monitored all the time with your Bluetooth and so on, your location on your phone. But here's you know, the you're worried about COVID. You know, this alert, is the thing that gets happened. me whenever we have this conversation, Denise. You're absolutely right. People will go to the mall. They have no problem going to the mall and they'll happily download an app that tells them when they walk in a store if that store is going to give them 10% or 20% off of a deal. But then when an app like this comes along, all of a sudden they have privacy issues. Absolutely. And I think that right now it's a, it's a question for Dr. Bonnie Henry or uh, Adrian Deck to say, when is the ad going to be activated in regards to being able to report a diagnosis? That is where we're at. So if we can get the app going, then we can get that momentum and then we can get a critical mass and we're just not there yet. So you think it's still worthwhile then people should still download that app, the Canadian contact tracing one? I still I, I have it on my phone. I think it's uh, something that people should consider because then if somebody comes from a different province and it's able to alert you that you get at proximity with that person for 15 minutes within two meters, yeah. like I said, it has limitations, right? So it's not like you're going to walk by someone on the street and he will alert you right there. It doesn't work that way. So that Bluetooth has limitation in regards to the duration and the proximity. But at least it's on your phone. So when they activate it, whenever that's going to be, then it's ready to go. Whenever that's going to be, exactly. Denny, thank you. You're very welcome. Have a great day, Simi. You too. That's Denny Gagnon, who's the president of BCSI Investigations. Uh, They are a cyber communications company. Now, this app problem is definitely one that has a lot of questions here in BC that need to be answered. What is taking BC so long to fully get on board with this? As Denny said, though, still worthwhile to download this app. About 3 million Canadians have done that so far, and hopefully it will catch on with more people. Have you done it? Are you still waiting uh, to find something that you are comfortable with? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's see what's up with Nikki Rettmeyer on this Monday morning. Nikki, how was your weekend? Good morning, Simi. My weekend was uh, okay. You know when you wake up on a Monday morning and you have trouble remembering what you did on the weekend. I was gonna say, how do you how did you forget? <laughs> it's just, today's Monday. It's- <laughs> I'm just trying to think of what I did. Okay, Friday I had the I had the, the neighbors over. The neighbors came over for drinks on Friday. That was nice. Uh, Saturday, okay, Saturday. Now, okay, now I remember what happened ah, this weekend. Okay. So on Friday, the neighbors came over. We had a bit of wine at the apartment. And I have a girlfriend who's staying with me right now. She's been with me for the past month or so. And she's been in BC for about two months now in total. But she's from Ontario originally. So, you know, we got into a little bit of wine on Friday night. However, you know, Saturday, you wake up feeling not so great, but you still try to be active. I got out and I ran two kilometers. I thought that was pretty good considering how much wine I drank the night before. (laughs) She got out and she ran a half marathon. On oh, Saturday, Nikki, she's leaving you in the dust. It, literally, like so. On an average Saturday, you would have been like, "Look at how good I am! I did two k." But on this particular Saturday, you're like, "Oh, I guess it wasn't good enough." I emptied the dishwasher and I ran two kilometers. I thought I was doing pretty what? good for a Saturday. <laughs> what more could you ask for? That's what more could I possibly ask for? And even this morning, I, I'm a little bit groggy. She was up twenty minutes before even my alarm went off, and she's gone off to the gym for a workout. What? Unbelievable. I know. I don't know if I would be happy with somebody like that in my house. 
<laughs> you know, I actually, to be honest with you, on the, I mean, on the one hand, look, I, I don't like having this mirror held up to me that is reflecting back my own out of shapeness. But on the other hand, it's it's actually really motivating, right? Because you know, you've got someone in the house who's out and they're being so active that you realize you don't really have any excuses to not be active either. So, okay, well, you know, if she's going to go out for a run, well, I better go and try to do my best too. Or, you know, we went for a walk actually with Claire Allen, our friend Claire Allen yesterday. Uh, so, you know, you have these more opportunities to get out and be active. And, you know, on, on a Saturday night, instead of sitting around and saying, hey, do you want to order a pizza? You know, she's going to want to eat something healthy. So you find yourself eating something healthy too. Right. So it's actually been kind of nice to have that good influence in I the home so. as well. So then you didn't do what I did, which is when on Saturday night ended up watching that movie, The Invisible Man by myself, which was a really bad idea because it's scary. So how scary was this movie? Because I saw previews for it and I, I, I didn't think it looked that good to be honest with you you know there's this girl and she can't see her boyfriend because i don't know he's no he's that's not or something that he's <laughs> <laughs> so, no Nikki, that's obviously no. a bad summary of the plot yes, so it what is. happened then no it's a, it was a good movie it was on tv so and there's nothing i like more than you know watching a decent movie on tv because it's like a bonus because it just showed up there so i was watching this yeah. and then i realized oh wait a minute there's nobody home tonight and I'm in the house by myself and I'm watching this movie about an invisible man. And yeah, it just, it just creeped me out, you know, and the pets were not helping because you know how the pets sometimes they stand, they sit there and they stare off into space and you're not sure what they're looking yes. at. Yeah. That they're happened at the too. Invisible man. Yeah. So then <laughs> I was like this, I should, I should just find something else to watch some kind of comedy or something, but no, I stuck through it. And you know what? Not a bad movie. Okay, okay, that's a good recommendation, especially as we Just get watch it during into the day. Halloween. Yeah, watch well, it during the day. Well, and this says a lot coming coming from you that you think it's a scary movie because I know that you tend to do scary movie marathons with your daughter leading up I, to Halloween. I have done that in the past where the month of October was like scary movie October. Problem is now we've seen them all. All the good classic right. ones that you want to watch in the month of <laughs> I was like, oh, are we going to watch like all four Scream movies again? Or like the first, you know, two, three out of the good six Halloween movies or whatever the case may be, so... Yeah, see, that's the problem with all these movies, isn't it? That they've done so many, you know, Halloween, five, six, seven, by the time you get to 10 or 11. Are are they on seven now? I think so. I know there's five because even I was surprised. I was like, wow, where did those two or three come from? I completely missed those ones. You'd be surprised at how many Michael Myers movies there are. Are they good, though? I mean, have people figured out they well. can just run from this guy? They don't have to just walk? <laughs> Somehow guy, he always walks, manages to catch up to you, Nikki. He's always there. He's, the first one the is killer great. always walks, right? Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, Jason always walks, too. The Friday the 13th kill, that's the thing I never understood. But the, the first um, Halloween movie is fantastic. The second one is okay. The most recent one, which I think came out just last year, was also actually pretty good. So I'd say the first one and the last one are the ones that you should definitely watch. Hmm. I'll have to watch this uh, one of these movies with my my roommate who's staying with me, my girlfriend. We know, of course, if one of these scary movies was to ever play out in real life, who would survive? Certainly she would. She would run away. She'd be running a half marathon away from one of these guys. <laughs> <laughs> there I would be, you know, trying to walk away from Jason. <laughs> just That's the theme from Zombieland, right? You always got to find somebody who you're faster than. Remember the movie Zombieland? Right. <laughs> got to always find somebody. Yeah, you got to hang with the person who you know you're faster than. So at least, you know, you'll be able to escape in the case of a zombie apocalypse. I've heard that before with bears as well. You don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster <laughs> than the person you're with. <laughs> That's exactly it. So we sat around. It sounds like we didn't get a whole lot accomplished. But then, as you and I both know, we've been reading all these stories about people who are accomplishing lots of great stuff. 
Oh, man. I read a great story this weekend of a fellow from Langley, B.C. His name's George Doy. This guy's 88 years old, and he just accomplished something. It's really, really cool. He basically walked the circumference of the Earth. So, obviously, this took him a few years to complete. We're talking about 40,000 kilometers. But he's been keeping track of the mileage that he walks or the kilometers that he walks says he just loves to walk he's loved to walk his whole life at all he said really began when he was working at a logging camp when he was 15 years old i guess he used to get impatient waiting for the greyhound bus to come so he thought i oh, forget it i'll just walk you know i'll just go myself and walk he said he burns through a pair of shoes in as little as three to four months still at what? 88 years old isn't that incredible? I saw a picture of this man. He does not look 88 at all. And maybe all the walking is the reason why. Exactly. You know, you stay that healthy. I mean, you're going to age well, I guess. You know, in theory anyways. And he still seems to be, of course, extremely healthy. Able to walk what is, yeah, the circumference of the earth. In 2018 is when he started this goal. I guess it's when he realized that he'd been walking so many kilometers. He thought, geez, you know, I could probably do this. I could probably pull this off. And then on September 17th, he said that he officially officially made it. It was actually 21 years after he began, but even keeping track of all of his, his kilometers this whole time. And then there you go. Lo and behold, just a couple days ago, he'd officially, virtually walked around the earth. That's amazing. And his commitment to this is phenomenal. In the last couple of years, since he decided he wanted to finish this goal, he was walking twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening, four miles each time. So he was watching eight miles a day, Nikki, just for the heck of it. That's amazing. I got to set him up with my roommate. <laughs> you got to go unload the dishwasher. Uh, Nikki, yeah. thanks. Thanks very much for thanks, that. Simi. Okay. This is Mornings with Simi. We wait, as always, this afternoon for the update of BC's COVID-19 numbers. Uh, we've hovered between 100, 150 for what seems like weeks now, right? South of the border, though, it is a different situation. Four states just reported, once again, record increases. And then you've got this other huge scoop by the New York Times, too, that everybody is talking about down there. Our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Giacchini, joins us with more. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Let's start with those COVID-19 numbers. It doesn't sound like there's any kind of plateauing or anything going down there. No, look, if anything, the plateau has been uh, kind of a numbing factor across this country as daily case counts kind of hover in and around 40,000 per day. The death toll sits at 1,000 per day. Uh, and as you mentioned, there are uh, on the approach to two dozen states, if not more, that are reporting a daily increase in their case numbers now. This is going to be compounded by the fact that a state like Florida, effective today, has lifted all restrictions that were linked to COVID-19. That's um, not a good sign when you consider the numbers are still so high up there. It's not a good sign, uh, but the uh, governor, Ron DeSantis, is lifting restrictions on indoor dining at bars. Strip clubs are allowed to open. There is no more kind of restriction on who should and can and where they can be gathering. Uh, And this is problematic in a state where the number is just simply so high that there's a fear that we're about to reach a a kind of uh, uh, bigger or at least quicker rising third wave here or at least third spike because we're technically still in the first wave in the U.S. because the numbers just have not gone down. So in Florida, like what's happening with the healthcare system there? Can they, how can they cope with this many cases? 
there are fears not only in Florida, but right across the country that as we get into the flu season, that there are going to be fewer beds available for those that potentially do get sick. Now, the one thing that the U.S. is seeing that's different from earlier this year, it's younger people that are getting sick. It is not older people, uh, which means that hospitalization rates are not what they were six or seven months ago. Uh, but once we get into flu season, when we know the flu can statistically impact an older population, there is a risk here that we end up with another surge uh, in hospital crises, not only in areas where there are older populations like Florida and the Northeast, but right across the country. That just seems crazy. And of course, it sounds like, Reggie, also in the United States today, everybody's talking about this scoop in the New York Times where they managed to get a hold of years, it sounds like, of President Donald Trump's tax returns. Yeah, two decades worth of tax returns that the president has fought to keep out of the public's eye. Uh, and the numbers are shocking. It shows the president uh, eclipsing $400 million in personal debts that are going to come due sometime in the next uh, three, four, or possibly five years. Uh, it shows that he has uh, suffered massive losses at all of his companies, and he's used those losses to his advantage to pay no income tax. Fif- uh, Ten of the last 15 years before he was president, he had a $0 income tax due, and only two years of which he became president, a tax due of $750. Okay, well, those are shocking numbers, I know, but I was wondering too, Reggie, like, if you're a Donald Trump supporter, this doesn't do anything to change your mind, because you're probably looking at that going, geez, I wish I could pay fewer taxes too. Yeah, a number of reasons here are going to play into that. A, these people uh, and the president's base are the ones who stood by him during the Access Hollywood tapes almost four years ago to where we are right now. They've stood through him through the scandals, and they'll look at him and say, President Trump has said he's a good businessman. He said he's a billionaire. We know he's rich. This will help him uh, kind of skirt the tax laws. Good on him for being able to find those loopholes. Well, his base are the ones who have to open their wallets and prop the government up by paying their income taxes. This is what we've been saying. Demographics play a, a key factor here. The president goes after non-college educated whites in middle America, where tax law may simply be over their heads, unlike the supporters of Donald of, of Joe Biden, rather, who are more college educated and who see the crisis uh, that this, that these numbers really put forth. Also in the United States, isn't there always a bit of the also that mentality of, yeah, well, when I'm when I get to be that rich because everybody feels they have that opportunity, I want to do that, too. And look, the richest of the rich in America oftentimes do find ways to skirt tax laws, but they still end up paying hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in taxes. Even President Obama was paying tens of thousands of dollars in taxes when he was president, despite the fact that the president himself, Donald Trump, then was criticizing Obama for not paying enough in taxes. And the president's own tax laws that he has signed into place uh, have really restricted what people can use as tax write-offs, yet he's been kind of skirting his own tax laws now for years. Right. So the when you look at some of these numbers, though, they are startling. I think the first year that he was president, he paid, what, $750? $750 in income taxes. If you're a person in America making $18,000 a year, which is b- below kind of the minimum poverty range here, uh, your tax due would be $760. So it shows what the president has done to ensure that he pays absolutely nothing. Now, he does say that he pays state taxes and Medicare and Social Security. uh, But at the end of the day, it's his income taxes that are going to cause the problems here. And he's in a battle with the IRS over a massive tax refund that he had uh, questionably obtained years ago. That is also potentially going to weigh on the president and possibly have him owe another $100 million. There is a chance that if President Trump is elected again, a bank could foreclose on him or he could have to declare bankruptcy as a sitting president because he will not be able to make the minimum payments on his loans. And that kind of alters the kind of desperation for re-election here too, doesn't it? It, 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 it does because he relies on foreign uh, countries as potential income, whether it's at his golf resorts, whether it's at his hotel in Washington. These foreign uh, 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 kind of people come in, pay money into his own pocket, which he can then use to pad his finances to ensure
ensure that he doesn't kind of fall any further below zero. Mm. But it also raises questions as to whether the president could be compromised under a national security threat if he's found to be in a vulnerable position with a potential foreign adversary like in Turkey or in Russia. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Yeah, huge scoop for the New York Times in the last 24 hours. And they're saying that there is more to come. This is Mornings with Simi. So you've been hearing about this open letter to NDP leader John Horgan in his capacity as premier. It's calling for a halt to construction at Site C. Now, it's signed by a a bunch of different people, First Nations leaders, environmentalists, and the former president and CEO of BC Hydro, Mark Ellison, who joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you very much for being here. It's my pleasure. So what brought this about? Well, actually, it uh, it came about as a result of uh, BC Hydro finally having to come public at the end of July and informing us basically that what took place last year in December is that they were having major um, stability, uh, foundation stability problems at the Site C construction site. Now, this is after they've poured millions of cubic feet of uh, concrete to uh, to establish the uh, the main structure, which is the spillway, the powerhouse, which contains the turbines and generators. And the fact is that they've had to admit that uh, they don't know um, uh, how to fix the problem. Uh, of the, this is the geotechnical uh, challenges, and they don't know what the cost would be. However, they're still going ahead with construction activities, including a river diversion. And um, to us, it is totally uh, irresponsible uh, to continue construction activities uh, because this is not only a catastrophe risk to public safety, but an enormous escalation in costs of the uh, generating station. As most people are aware, the original cost of the Site C was uh, estimated at $6.6 billion. It uh, creeped up, uh, escalated enormously to 8.9. Right. Uh, the current figures that they're carrying on the books is 10.7, and I believe we're looking now at a figure north of uh, $12 billion. So that's why our group has called for a uh, halt in the uh, construction, uh, pending a review by outside consultants, uh, engineers, to take a look at the geotechnical uh, problems and to see whether it could be fixed or not. Now, we often hear that phrase, too big to fail. Is this too big to stop at this point, or is that still feasible? Oh, it, absolutely. Uh, because if you, if you go ahead uh, on uh, creating a further possible disaster to public safety, that the generating station, <clears throat> as a result of leakage that is taking place, and <clears throat> fixes which are, are not fixes, then you will have a failure of the entire station. You have uh, uh, a generating station that doesn't fail, and this is a, a major risk to public safety. People are unaware that the design, which had been the books uh, had been on the books of BC Hydro for many years, was changed radically in 2010 to 
2011 to an L shape. There has never been a generating station uh, for an earthfield dam with an L shaped design. It's never been peer reviewed. So we're dealing here in a whole world of uncertainty. So you don't dig deeper into a hole if you're going to sink in the future. And so uh, this is why the uh, construction halt should take place pending uh, the uh, review of the geotechnical problems. Let me ask you then, you said it was changed to an L-shape. Why did that happen? What was the, what was the benefit of doing that? What was the thinking? Well, from the, from the little information that's been made available by BC Hydro, they determined that uh, there were uh, major uh, leakages problems that were going to take place if they held with the uh, main design. So they redesigned it, which escalated the costs enormously. Uh, but the new design, clearly, uh, on the basis of what has taken place so far, has not been successful. And now they've uh, had to publicly admit, after hiding this information for almost uh, eight months, that uh, they're taking a look to see what kind of fixes uh, can take place, and they don't know what the cost uh, will be. So uh, this is a, um, basically a financial fiasco, and uh, so we've called upon uh, Premier Horgan to stop the construction activities uh, and to undertake this uh, independent review. The independent review process, then, is that separate, you think, from what they've already done so far and sending in you know, other people to take a look at it? Why is that well, not it, sufficient? Exactly, because uh, when Premier Horgan gave the go-ahead on the project at the end of uh, 2017, he appointed a, pr- a project oversight uh, committee uh, to ensure that the costs would not escalate and there would not be difficulties. Now he comes out and says he's profoundly disappointed. There has not been any public uh, reporting by this oversight committee, and he violated one of the principal rules of oversight by appointing individuals uh, who had a conflict of interest, that they are people who were actually involved in the design uh, of the project itself. And that's why you need outside independent uh, individuals uh, who to do a thorough assessment uh, without any relationship to BC Hydro. And you say if it's still not viable at that point, walk away from it? You have to, uh, because you will face a, uh, a collapsed dam in the future. And there have been uh, enough examples that have taken place in the world today of such structures uh, uh, that have uh, fallen uh, down uh, after being completed. So then, Mark, to be clear, then, do you feel that these problems are unfixable? I don't know. And most people don't know. And it appears BC Hydro doesn't know. And that's why you're dealing in a highly specialized nature of geotechnical uh, uh, challenges. And uh, it's, it's a real dilemma. Like people, it's not as if people didn't know about the, the, the kind of structure in which the site uh, was going to be located. And uh, BC Hydro has been warned for many, many years uh, of the false, uh, you're dealing on shale rock, it's not mm-hmm. uh, hard rock. Um, and uh, with an additional uh, fracking, uh, natural gas fracking activities taking place in the entire region, causing uh, uh, potential earthquake uh, challenges, um, 
this is the kind of dilemma that you're facing now. This project, of course, in my view, should have never gone ahead because uh, we right. never had a need for the electricity. There were alternatives that were cheaper, non-renewable resources that were available, uh, and uh, we never needed Site C. But now that the decision was going ahead, we're facing this public uh, safety risk. Uh, Mark, thank you very much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. That's Mark Eliasson, who's the former president and CEO of BC Hydro. He is one of the signatories of this open letter. You'll see it in the papers this morning. The Vancouver Sun has it. It is an open letter to John Horgan urging a serious reevaluation of Site C construction and potentially even walking away from the project if they can't figure out the extent, the depth, the cost of the problems that they are facing right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I always think it's so important to make sure you throw some good news in there too. And I think we look for the good news these days, don't we? Well, we have some very exciting news for you, particularly if you do follow the Southern Resident Killer Whale Pod that seems like we all follow this to make sure that they are healthy and everything is okay. Well, it turns out, remember the Orca Pod that welcomed the new calf at the beginning of the month and we've talked about this? Well, they have another new member. And we're going to learn all about that now. Joining us is Kelly Belcombartok, who's a communications director with the Pacific Whale Watch Association. Kelly, thanks for joining us. I'm absolutely happy to be here, and thank you for having me. Now, what did we learn? What's going on? Is there another whale calf there? Oh, yes, ma'am. Very exciting news. Uh, Just the other day, a whale watch vessel out of Victoria was uh, fortunate enough to witness the absolute first breath of J-41 Eclipse's calf. And so we're very excited to report that there is indeed a second baby whale in J-Pod. How extraordinary is this, given all the things that we have learned about this particular pod over the last few years? Uh, I, I think if it, in, in good, healthy years, decades ago, we would have had five or six calves. So this, this is great news under the circumstances. And I think it just is a reminder that, you know, if, if we can bring fish back, we can bring whales back. And uh, so there is indications there's a lot of fish out there right now, uh, which is great news. And uh, it's just really fun to see a, a new baby in J-Pod and, and see the excitement that everybody's so excited about the whale worldwide. It sure sounds like it, too. So you said it, if it, things were healthy, then there should be, what, more than two? Yes, yes, ma'am. Uh, in the uh, late 90s, the J-Pod, uh, the southern residents were, were verging on 100 whales, and now we're down to 74 and that's really due to uh, massive declines over the last few decades in salmon. So it's, it really is, you know, when the, when the shelves are bare, the whales aren't there. And we've had some real absences this year, uh, May, June, and August, where no southern residents. I mean, there's lots of big whales, and they eat seals, and there's lots of humpbacks. But our southern residents had to go somewhere else to find food. The good news is they're finding it somewhere. So they're out off the Swisher Banks, and they're out off the Vancouver Island coastline. And they've come in to give birth to a couple new babies. So that gives us hope. Yeah, it does. So we, do we know where they're getting that food? Well, I, you know, Chinook is their favorite food. And so they're, they're following the Chinook. And uh, up in Alaska, coasts of uh, Vancouver Island, out off uh, Queen Charlotte, that's where Chinook really are through most of their life cycle. So I think the whales are going out to the outer coast and spending more time out where the food is. And so while their lack of presence here indicated some concern it's actually it's very very hopeful that uh, we're seeing that they're finding food elsewhere so so is that something we have seen them do before kelly or is this a new type of behavior i would say over the last few years this is a really new behavior um in in the past 
uh, older matriarchs, you know, had routines that would keep the whales coming into the islands and searching. And I think um, there's some new leadership and some new mothers and matriarchs rock, by the way, and uh, that they're out there um, doing something different to, to try to find that food and keep those families healthy. So that's the irony then of this, like even though the population might have struggled the last few years, has it made it more, like we're learning more from them essentially? Absolutely. There's a whole lot of new learning and, and it's a real reminder uh, for us anyway that, uh, you know, again, it's that let's roll up our sleeves and, and do everything we can to help salmon and by helping salmon streams, salmon habitats, salmon stocks, uh, we're going to help the whales. And that's really what this uh, hopeful message, I think, should brings home for me anyway. Okay, so good news for now, though, I guess, what we still track and hopefully we'll see even more? Oh, yes, ma'am. Let's hope. You bet. Let's keep those, uh, keep those fish coming and, and keep those baby whales going because every single one is really important to this population and while Tahlequah's calf was a real dramatic story of, uh, you know, the one that lost her uh, calf two yeah. years ago, um, it gives us hope that there is a, a whale in the population. Let's hope this little J41 calf is uh, female, though. We really need some more females because, again, as I said, matriarchs really are the, uh, the backbone, the core of uh, southern residents. And so we need every female we can get that survives and uh, continues to bring a healthy population of southern residents. Well, thank you for telling us all about it this morning, Kelly. No, thank you for sharing the good news with everybody. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to finally bring some good news on the Southern yeah, Resident Front. Exactly. All right. Thank you so much. That's Kelly Belcombartok, who's the Communications Director with the Pacific Whale Watch Association with the good news that not just one, but now we've learned a second whale calf has been born to that population of Southern Resident killer whales that we've all been watching so carefully. This is Mornings with Simi. Just getting some figures out of Ontario in the last few minutes and new COVID-19 cases in that province have now reached their highest mark ever. They are reporting 700 new cases in the past 24 hours. So clearly going in a direction that is not good for a province that is three times the size population-wise of BC. Their numbers are exponentially higher too. So not good, right? Which makes you think we're still right in the middle of this. And one of the ways in which people have continued to keep going, despite all the problems, the economic problems that come along with this, are programs like the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. It has been crucial for people to continue on with their lives if their jobs have been impacted by the pandemic. And yet, despite those numbers, like we just heard from Ontario, the numbers from BC, we know that some of these programs are going to be ending at the end of this month and over the next few weeks. Some people will be switched over to a new kind of employment insurance Others moving over to brand new programs. We wanted to talk more about that this morning. So joining us now is David McDonald, Senior Ottawa Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. David, thank you very much for being here. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. So what do we know about these new programs? Are they going to work much the same way and will everybody qualify? Well, so the picture is changing by the day and the values that people will get on these new programs is also changing by the day. Um, it, it, previously, there, there was going to be a new floor on EI at $400 a week. And so you, you couldn't make less than that uh, on EI. And $400 a week for one of these new benefits called the Canada Recovery Benefit, which is for self-employed workers. And that's been increased to $500 a week. And that's what people were getting on CERB. And so what that means is that of the people presently on CERB, about 4 million people right now still receiving CERB, um, 
about uh, 80% of them will be the same or better off after they transition to uh, one of these new programs. Um, there's EI, which will be the primary support for people coming off CERB. About half of the people on CERB will roll into EI. Uh, and then there's the new Canada Response Benefit, uh, which is for self-employed and gig workers. And then there's also the Canada Recovery Caregiving Benefit. And this is for folks uh, who have to take time off because, uh, you know, the kids can't go to school because they're getting tested or the, the school's closed down or childcare's closed down. Uh, but broadly speaking, I mean, if we look at Vancouver, for instance, I mean, there's 327,000 people in Vancouver on the CERB, um, and 79% of them will be the same or better off once uh, CERB ends and people roll into one of these new programs. Now, is this for people to figure out, or is the government going to help them figure out? Because this is a lot for people to realize, okay, which one of these do I fit into? Yeah, I mean, that's a bit of a different story. Um, Depending on how you got CERB, you might roll into EI automatically, or you might not. So if you're receiving CERB in $2,000 chunks, uh, which means that you applied to CERB through the CRA website, the tax website, um, you will not be rolled into EI automatically. Uh, so there's over uh, three-quarters of a million Canadians that are receiving CERB through the, through the uh, CRA, through, through the tax website, and they'll have to go to the EI website and apply for EI. They will not get EI automatically. Uh, that I think is now up and running as of today. And so if you're receiving it $2,000 chunks, you should go to the EI website and apply. Um, for folks that have already gotten CERB through the EI website, which mm-hmm. is they're, they're making it $1,000 increments, they will be rolled over automatically. Um, people who don't qualify for EI, now they're going to have to figure out which one of these other programs they might qualify for. And the legislation hasn't even been passed yet. So the Mm. websites are up and running. You can't go find out about it. I mean, you can sort of know broadly what the details are. But I think this is one of the challenges is there isn't an overlap here between when CERB ends and when all these new programs and all their websites and all their helper websites are all up and running. So it is, I'm afraid, going to be a messy trend. It didn't have to be like this, but unfortunately, this time frame has meant that it's going to be a messy transition. And what do you mean it didn't have to be like this? What would have been a better approach? Well, we could have extended CERB for another month, got the legislation passed, got all the websites up and running, got everybody all set to go so they knew where they were going next or where they would likely go next, um, and then end CERB. So in, in, in contrast, what's happened is CERB has ended as of yesterday um, for, for Canadians that have been on it since the, since the start. Um, but some of these other programs aren't up and running yet. I get the sense too as well, David, I don't know about you, but with the government, is it, you know, they thought that by this fall we would be transitioning things back to normal, and clearly, I mean, just given those numbers we just heard from Ontario, we are far from that. I think that's what a lot of people hope, to be recover, we shut down. I mean, you know, when, it, when the initial shutdowns started, it we thought it was going to be for two weeks, uh, and six months later, some things are opening back up, schools and child cares are opening back up, and we're finding that uh, that might be challenging, and case counts are starting to rise as people start to go indoors. I think it's going to continue to be a challenging time. Now, thankfully, these programs, despite this messy transition, will continue to, to, to provide support to Canadians at the same level or slightly better as served it. So it'll continue to be a very important um, support for Canadians. And as if we do see a second wave and we do see additional layoffs and we do see people have to stay home from work to take care of kids, for instance, um, these programs should, should be in place. I think one of the real tests will be the EI system which is not attestation-based. So one of, the, one of the reasons why CERB was so fast was you could just check a website box and the yeah. money showed up in your account two days later. EI is not like that. And it, and it could be like that. We could make the first payment like that. We haven't. Um, and so 
EI requires everything to be in order. All the forms have to be there. Everything has to be in. And once that's true, then you can get the payment. And for a lot of Canadians, uh, that paperwork will go through correctly. Uh, but when you've got 4 million people transitioning off of CERB, 2 million coming into the EI system, there's going to be foul-ups, and it's going to be difficult for Canadians to find a human being to fix those foul-ups so they can Ooh. get support. And that's the tough part, because we know that CERB went a long way towards keeping certain aspects of the economy afloat. What's interesting about this recession, in contrast to previous ones, is that we just haven't seen the collapse in consumer spending that we generally see. Uh, when people lose their jobs, they, they stop spending pretty quickly yeah. when there's no money coming in. Um, when you've got CERB that can click in so quickly, for people who've lost their jobs, who have to take time off because they're quarantining or their kids are kicked out of school because they've got a runny nose. Um, it's a lot easier to keep spending when you've got money coming in the door. But once you start putting roadblocks uh, in the way of people accessing programs that they're entitled to, like EI, um, you end up with people saying, geez, you know, I don't, have, I don't have as much money to spend in the economy. I'm going to cut back on my spending. And there's an impact on local businesses and there's an impact on the Canadian economy as a result. Interesting. David, thank you so much for your time on this. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. David McDonald, Senior Ottawa Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, talking about the way that so many Canadians are going to be transitioned off of the Canada Emergency Response Benefit to other systems, whether it's employment insurance or one of these new benefits that have been created. And yeah, there is concern that it won't go as smoothly as getting everybody onto the system, uh, how that went about six months or so ago. This is Mornings with Simi. Ah, excellent musical choice for this next story. We're talking about bees. I think over the last few years, maybe five, ten, more and more of us have become very aware of how critical bees are to making sure that our habitat, our environment stays healthy. It's been an ongoing concern. We've got rooftop hives now, people getting, more and more people getting into beekeeping. Well, get this, the city of Delta actually has officially been named a bee city. And that is all thanks to their efforts to protect and attract these helpful pollinators. Remember, it's critical for a place like the city of Delta, where they have so much farmland, blueberry farms, and more that all need the help of bees to make sure those crops come to fruition. So our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak to Mel Cheeseman, who's a director of corporate services for the city of Delta. So can you tell me about how the city of Delta has been declared a bee city? What exactly does that mean? <laughs> uh, well, this um, declaration is sort of a long time coming. Uh, Delta for a long time has been working with many of its community organizations on biodiversity strategies and efforts to make sure that we have a healthy natural environment for, for years and generations to come. Uh, so to, to that end, in, in the fall of 2018, Delta Council adopted a birds and biodiversity conservation strategy. Uh, and then late in 2019, um, Mayor and Council adopted a climate motion that had a lot of great elements in there to making sure that we are doing all that we can for climate change and uh, the environment. And a significant part of both of those uh, policy strategy items uh, is to protect and enhance biodiversity in the region. And so when uh, when staff were looking at this bee city opportunity, we thought it was a perfect way to dovetail with the work that had been done to date by Council and um, really focus on bees in our city. So we um, council approved the initiative and we submitted our application and were accepted as the sixth BC uh, bee city. So who did you have to submit an application to? Who sort of, who gets to dub you a bee city? 
<laughs> there is a B City Canada is a federally registered uh, charitable organization uh, with a mission to inspire cities, towns, first nations, schools, businesses, and other organizations to take action to protect pollinators. So I think the first city in Canada to become a B City was City of Toronto in 2016. And um, there's, there's quite a few now across the country, I think uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 40. And we are the sixth one in BC, as I mentioned. That is fantastic. Well, congratulations on being the sixth B city in BC. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, what is the benefit of bringing bees to Delta? Yeah, it's really, um, you know, well, bees benefit, you know, lots of flora and fauna. And they're really critical to you know, everyone knows fruit trees and that sort of thing. Um, and so anything we can do to support the bee population will naturally extend to helping some of our other, um, some of the other elements of our natural environment. And uh, bees are a little bit threatened uh, by things like pesticides, um, lack, you know, redu- reduction in green space and that sort of thing. So if, you, if you're designated a bee city, it means that you're really committed and um, to protecting and enhancing their population. And so some of the things, and we, we do this on lots of different angles in the Climate Action Environment uh, Department here, but we will look for ways that we can adjust our operations that are bee-friendly. For example, our mowing practices, can we revise those to be more supportive of the bee population? Um, we, are, we already have uh, some pollinator gardens in various places so when we have an opportunity like if you have a big hydro right away or something we look at could what would we need to plant there to encourage bees uh to to live in that area and then the third arm is uh you know a commitment to providing a lot of educational activities and we do that for the community through social media we will celebrate um international pollinator week in in june and also we we sometimes have joint initiatives with with the school district to to support some of our programs and their educational areas regarding pollinators in the natural environment that is really interesting now i've heard a bit of a buzz as well that delta is hoping to become a bat city too Yes, we're going, we're going for it all. Um, <laughs> but there's actually already, I mean, you know, on the, on the bee side, we, we've done a lot already on the bat side as well. We have a major um, maternal bat colony on Indies Island. Uh, and so we already are kind of a, a hotspot for bats from, a, from an environmental perspective. It's significant. It's a really important habitat for over about 2,400 bats and the largest now maternity bat colony of its kind in bc so already pretty significant so we wanted to again uh, recognize that and uh, increase education for the public on the importance of bats also very important and um and make sure that we are furthering our efforts uh regarding their important role in ecosystems in our community as well and what kind of bats are we talking about generally there are I think on Dee's Island specifically in Delta, there's nine bat species there, wow. um, including some, and I certainly can't claim to be an expert on bats, but some, you know, more rare types, little brown myotis and numa bats are two key uh, species there. But yeah, up to up to nine different species in that location. That is really neat. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. I'm from Delta originally, so I love hearing about these types of initiatives. Nice. Well, thank you for your interest. We appreciate it. 
That's our Nikki Reitmeyer talking about her hometown there. That was Mel Cheeseman, Director of Corporate Services for the City of Delta, where they are officially now a bee city because they have done such a great job in encouraging more bees and making the community more habitable for them as well. And so that's kind of a cool designation out there. And they're also hoping to become a bat city. Also cool, I think.